Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make Supply Chain Management Review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Welcome to Talking Supply Chain with Brian Jensen. Where are we with robotics, micro-fulfillment, and retail platforms? And hey, we might even talk about AI here for a little bit. I'm Bob Troublecock, and for this episode, I've invited Brian Jensen to join me to talk about some of the hottest trends in distribution and fulfillment. What I'm trying to figure out is what do we think is lasting and what has legs? Now, if you don't know Brian, he's the chair and executive vice president of the supply chain consulting and design firm, St. Ange Company. He's also one of those guys I've turned to over the years to take the temperature of the industry. In fact, one of the ways I've always described my career is that I don't know squat, but I've made a living talking to people who did know squat. And Brian's one of those guys. Whenever I do an interview where I think I've come across something new and transformational, I can always count on Brian to temper my enthusiasm. So Brian, welcome and thanks for doing this. Well, thanks, Bob. But I think you just painted me as the ultimate innovation dampener, which hopefully I'm not. Um, Really appreciate the time we'll spend together here. And I'm looking forward to what you'd like to know. Well, I also painted you as a guy who knows squat. So (laughs) (laughs) my my other line, of course, is I was an English major, not an engineer. And I remember saying that to you once and you said, well, I almost have a PhD in Chaucer. So for all the good it did me. <laughs> for all the good it right, for all the good it did either of us. All right. So one, to kick us off, first of all, and just in case our audience isn't familiar with St. Ange, just tell us a little bit about what the firm does. I know you guys have a great client roster who you can never mention by name, but uh, it seems like whenever I bring up a project, you're like, oh yeah, no, we're familiar with that. So sure. tell us a little bit about the firm and what you do. Sure. St. Ange Company, and we've been around since 1983, is an independent engineering logistics supply chain company. And we've, we've resequenced those words occasionally. But in essence, uh, we don't buy or sell anything. We're an engineering resource for our clients, whether that be at the very strategic level, supply chain strategy development, or the intermediate level, network analysis, inventory optimization, SNOP, or at the very tactical level. Design my facility. Tell me what automation should go into it. Uh, Should I change my processes in lieu of automation? When should I put in automation? What are my risks? What are my sensitivities? What are my trigger points for it? And that applies across manufacturing and distribution organizations. In fact, those service offerings, designing inside the four walls with an attention to what level of automation should be implemented, um, really is what our company was founded doing. Those were the only services we offered when we opened our doors in 1983. And it is still more than 50% of the work that we do for our clients, both on a revenue basis and a pure number of projects basis. But at the same time, you do the whole gamut of supply chain uh, design now outside of the four walls included, right? Correct. We, like I said, we do supply chain strategy, network analysis, how big my facility should be, what their mission should be. Uh, you know, should I service by expedited uh, freight or should I service by putting locations closer to my customers? Um, inventory process and optimization. How much should I carry or beach skew to maintain a certain level of in-stock position? Um, and even down to sales and, and operations planning, uh, distribution planning, management, manufacturing, uh, resource planning. All of those, you know, kind of, I call them the, the buzz alphanumeric catchphrases. Um, it's the alphabet soup of logistics, which is only a little less convoluted than the government alphabet soup. 
<laughs> as uh, Dwight Klapik from Gartner, I always say is the, you know, the last thing we need is another three letter acronym in supply chain, but we always seem to come up with them. Uh, and also just sort of setting the stage real quick, just give us a little bit about your background, because we are going to talk mostly inside the four walls today. And along with St. Ange, uh, you've got some experience um, in that side of the uh, business. Yes. I mean, in, in all honesty, when I started at St. Ange 24 years ago now, um, that's what I did. I brought that capability from Toys R Us, where I spent 14 years previous to joining St. Ange Company. Uh, was was very fortunate to participate in the automation of the distribution network at Toys R Us, both location, sizing, and the technologies that went inside the building to automate them and, and essentially be, you know, the 20th century at the time, because that was before the turn of the century, the 20th century Santa Claus to everyone that we could. So I, you know, I was steeped in distribution operations, distribution design, distribution automation before I even joined St. Ange Company. So um, we're going to talk about four topics here in a minute, but I, I also wanted to put a little context here because, you know, you talk to a lot of clients and potential clients, uh, you know, about the issues they're having, what they're experiencing. We've all come through a, a pretty interesting time, uh, to, to, to say the least. Mm -hmm. When you talk to your client base, you know, just what's the state of things and if there's a commonality amongst the problems or issues they're dealing with, you know, what is it? Well, there's a couple of themes that they're not, they are real themes. Let me, let me start by saying that, but some of them have been either twisted and or magnified by the media. No, no offense, Bob. Um, and the first one, of course, is the labor crisis. There's a labor shortage. Um, no, there isn't. There is a shortage of people who will work for the, the wages that we were used to being able to pay. And it's a lot, lot of words to say, I can't get the people I need at the cost that I want. Um, that's one big theme, which has begotten, okay, how do I automate? What's the best technology for my business, for my customer base, for my order profiles? How do I supplant that labor? And that is the recipe that basically cooked up St. Ange Company back in 1983. It was born to service folks who say, how much technology should I put in? What type of technology should I put in? Those questions aren't new. We've put a new face on why you're turning to them. And let's face it, the robotic suppliers, even the, the high-end mechanical automation suppliers, they love that. Oh, you have to automate. There's no choice. You can't find the labor. Well, the backside to that theme is don't worry about a payback. Well, that's a silly way to do business. You always have to worry about the ROI. It's not a zero choice game automate or do nothing. It's automate or pay wages that are extremely high. And those wages may very well justify significant automation, but that's the way to approach it. That's the biggest theme. H how do I figure this out in this new environment, which isn't really new, it's just been painted new. Um, the other big question is, which technologies are going to last? Some of this, for those who have been in industry and watch, watch it closely, is, is really the aftermath of the Kiva Amazon debacle. Amazon didn't make a mistake when they bought Kiva. Everybody who bought Kiva before Amazon bought them was really hurt by that because it was no longer supported. They literally had to change out technology that was a large capital investment. People don't want that to happen again. And when you have single threat technology, that risk looms very large over your supply chain. And then, of course, the last major theme, which is probably the biggest question, um, but has started to sort itself out a bit is, supply chain 
irregularity, supply chain failure, call it what you will. I'm not getting the stuff I need in the time I need it to support my customers' demands. And how can my supply chain mitigate those risks? How do I do that? Is it something inside the four walls? Is it something outside the four walls? So th those are some of the major post-COVID themes that have really kind of driven the questions we get from our clients in the last 12 months or so. You know, and of course, uh, I, I've been uh, this year talking to a lot of either chief supply chain officers or VPs of supply chain at very large companies. It, it, it's been, a, you know, a real blessing to have these conversations. And th those are are three things that come up uh, all the time. The uh, the interesting one, when you were talking about people who bought Kiva, uh, you know, lost support and don't want to be put that in that position again, you know, that was... That was the thought process behind the, the, the founding of what became Locus Robotics. Uh, Quiet Logistics had been one of Kiva's first customers. Um, lost Kiva and said, well, we could get another robot, but what if they get bought up by Amazon? Then we're you know, right back where we started. So we'll make, or, uh, make our own robot. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting to hear you know, uh, other people saying that. All right. That's a great foundation. So I want to talk about four topics that are hot in the supply chain and get your take on them. Sure. Um, you know, from where you sit, let's go to the to the thing that you just raised. What's real? What has promise? Let's start with something I hear every software provider out there talking about: artificial intelligence and machine learning. From where you sit in the supply chain, are they real? Are they ready for prime time? Um, one, it goes back to please define those terms specifically, because I first off, let me be very blunt. I am not a software engineer. I am not an artificial intelligence expert by any stretch of the imagination. But I have spoken to those who are and they say for supply chain applications, true artificial intelligence, where the machine learns on its own completely interprets trial error. Um, really isn't being applied in supply chain software as we currently know it, or in robotic software that's being offered to the mass markets. I'm sure there are very sophisticated artificial intelligence applications that are being tested as we speak. Um, but you need to make sure that the level of uniqueness in the software that you're applying, one, is applicable to what you need done, Two, is reliable, has been proven, has been out there and shown time and time again that it can do what you need it to do. Um, and three, is, is supportable across a broad base of technical support organizations. You know, I, I had a conversation earlier today, literally with somebody um, asking about, you know, single threaded technologies. And they, they asked me, to, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, if you buy a Buick, you don't have to take it to Buick to be serviced. You can take it to any one of a plethora of mechanics. If you buy single thread technology, the only support you have is that Buick dealership, much more akin to Tesla today. You need to get it to a Tesla technician in order to service it. Now, 20 years from now, that'll be very different, just like every technology as it proliferates. But that's what you need to make sure that that software, because that's artificial intelligence is imbued into the software, or the software is artificially intelligence in the way its code operates. You need to make sure that that's supportable by more than just the organization that's bringing it to you and make sure that it has value, that that true learning really makes sense. Is that what you need? You're, you know, I don't mean to undersell what we do as supply chain experts or as logisticians, if I can get the word out of my mouth, um, but 
do we really need artificial intelligence in order to optimize our supply chains? I think machine learning or trial and error learning, many people kind of stratify that as a step below artificial intelligence. Um, I think that is a little more prevalent where it tries, fails, tries again and fails better. Um, but I don't think either of them are in the forefront of everything that robotic applications are doing today. I think good, solid and very brilliant software engineering is there. I think there's some very sophisticated applications, um, but I've yet to see true artificial intelligence in any supply chain application. And I don't hear about it from those who are experts in the field, because as I said at the beginning of this minor diatribe, I am not a software expert, nor am I a software engineer. If, if you think about where we are, you know, I, I started following, say, the WMS and TMS uh, uh, field back around 2000, might have even been 1999. And certainly, um, I've seen a lot of development and changes since then. If you think about um, the state of, of where like WMS software is today, as an example, knowing that, you know, uh, that you're not a, a software engineer. Mm -hmm. How do you describe the, the difference in the capabilities of what the software can do for us today, you know, versus when uh, Manhattan sort of got founded to do, you know, barcode label compliance? Sure, sure. Um, the biggest difference, at least in the, the most common software applications today, is their ability to rapidly process multiple possibilities and identify the best solution. I'll oversimplify it. I have a thousand orders and I know I need to do a hundred orders at a time. So I have 10 batches a day. If I have those thousand orders in hand already, the software can go through every possible permutation of adding up those thousand orders into 10, 100 order batches and come up with a hundred order batches that balance the work content across the building as easily as possible. A human being could do that too, given two days worth to do the math on an old green IE sheet, like the first spreadsheets I worked on when I broke into the industry, but it would, by the time you finish it, it's moot because your orders need to go out the door. The processing power to identify permutations, rank them and, and make optimal use as well as react. I came up with the perfect batch al allocation and then one of my conveyor lines went down. Well, now I only have you know three conveyor lines to work with. I can very quickly reorganize the workload to get as much as possible done based on the resources I have available. That's some of the power that you see in WMSs today that you didn't see when they first came in and they were, well, in essence, glorified receiving, locating, manual picking and shipping systems. They just kept very good records. Yeah, it, it's kind of remarkable. I was, I was talking to a guy the other day who uh, does uh, packaging optimization. And, um, and, and one of the things they do is sort of counterintuitive, which is to say, you know, they might go into a facility that has eight box sizes and what the facility really needs is 20 box sizes, but it doesn't need as many boxes as it's keeping for the eight sizes. And he said, you know, they, they will take historical records, uh, order records, and, and the first pass, they come up with the hundred best box sizes. Mm -hmm. Well, then they start and they rank them, you know, one to a hundred. Well, then mm -hmm. the system does different combination, all the different combinations you can do mm -hmm. of those hundred different box sizes to come up with another hundred, um, you know, that, that may move something that was down below up and they can do that sort of indefinitely until the customer, you know, throws up their hands. But he said, the other thing is that, you know, we might've been able to do that five years ago, but it would have, to your point, would have taken two days to do it. 
Right. And, you know, now the system can do it, you know, in a couple of hours and run through all those things and say, these are the boxes you need. On that particular point, Bob, we've done um, cartonization uh, efforts here where we create a tool that doesn't just help maximize the cube in the carton, but then you get that hundred and you say, what if I take out the 50 worst? How bad is my cube loss? Because it might not be worth carrying an extra 50 cartons if it doesn't pay big dividends. Um, and then once you identify that cube loss, then you run it through a freight costing algorithm, which is, gee, based on dim weights, here's what my freight costs if I use the best cartons versus the best 50 versus the best 10. And you really look at the whole supply chain impact of the size of your carton based on the size of the components you're packing into it. 10 years ago, it would have taken an inordinate amount of time to do all that at once. Today, it runs for about 45 minutes. Right. Yeah. No, it, it's pretty remarkable. Um, all right. Let's talk about robotics. Now, you and I were at Modex. You know, I've heard any number of people say, you know, it was really a robot show. Um, I, you know, I think everybody, including the label guys, had an AMR running around it. Um, as you see it, um, oh, the, you know, the other point is, you know, I had a conversation with uh, a guy from, from one of the largest distributors in the country of a particular kind of uh, of product, I can't you know, mention the company, who was saying to me, he's the innovation guy. And he said, you know, we've been looking at like piece picking robots. We've been looking at autonomous lift trucks. They're almost there, but they're not quite there. So, you know, you go to Modex, you think everybody's got a piece picking robot putting on an AMR that goes to a case handling robot or something. What's really going on out there? What's the state of robotics? Well, I, I think your distributor friend summed it up rather nicely um, versus a year ago, they've come a long way, tremendous way, but they're not commoditized yet. And, and nobody wants to hear, I don't want to be commoditized. I want to be that special application that's magical and everybody wants. And, and I get that, but let's face it. If you go back to the seventies, um, automated sortation was just becoming available. You know, barcode scanning was, was available when you formally used to have to punch in a code with a sortation operator. And then sortation became, and it is today, commoditized. Lots of different approaches. You had a tilt tray sorter, you had cross belt sorters, which was kind of like tilt tray, only better. And then you had your sliding chew sorters, which was faster, cheaper, but could, but had limited sortation capability. But you had some major buckets of here's the applications you use for certain types of products, certain types of order profiles, and certain type of fulfillment and distribution center demands. Well, robotics aren't quite there yet. They're not that well-defined. The plus side to robotics is they're much more configurable, malleable in general, if you will, from a sorter's a sorter. It runs in a straight line or a loop and it goes down and it does this. A robot or the robots as they currently call them, because you can get into an argument over whether they're really robots or they're automated, you know, are they, you know, automated mobile robots or are they just good ASRS retrieval devices that don't run on a fixed track? To some degree, there's truth in all of those descriptions. But one, look at how many robotic suppliers there are. And there are far fewer today than there were a year ago. There's already been consolidation. Um, I think as that consolidation happens and there's a more consistent offering, you'll see more consistent application. Each one will gain more experience. And by one, I mean company. Uh, they will understand how to best service the customer's needs rather than trying to force the customer's use to their robot strengths. A little bit different way of looking at things. Um, and those in, at least in the material handling industry, in my experience, when you can identify how your product will suit itself to the customer's requirements, 
and make it work for them, you've got a much better story to tell than if you walk into a customer and say, my device does this, that's how we'll service you. A little bit different approach there. As it gets commoditized, I think ro you know robot robots, as we call them, have legs. Um, I call them good decentralized automatic storage and retrieval devices. ASRS systems are proven. Parts to picker approaches are bonafide means by which to enhance your productivity. Supplanting footsteps with robots, supplanting grab actions and cartonizations or packaging actions with automation will always be attractive, providing the cost point on them and the cost to maintain them is appropriate and is equal to or proportional to what you would have to pay to get people into your building to do the same things. So that's a positive note on that one. I remember having a conversation with you a, a year and a half ago uh, where you said something along the lines of, everybody wants to have a robot and a robot is not always the answer. And I realize you're not saying it is the answer, right. but 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 there's there, there was a little bit more optimism there than a year and a half ago. Right. And, and some of it's become the robots are really defining or they're being defined into roles that other automation takes care of to TOO as well. Um, and once you have those in those, once you can do those points of comparison, you can then, hey, is it robots? Is it a is it an ASRS with a, an OMR that I'm going to have pull my product to me and I don't need a robot? Do I just need a robot to pull the product forward and then I can take it from there? All those components, you know, as you, you asked in your question, a robot can do this, it can do that, it can do this. A human being can do this, can do that and do this. And intermediate mechanical automation can do this, that and this. Figure out the best solution to each link in that internal building supply chain and then you've got your answer robots are going to be a part of that. Which ones? I don't know that we know that yet, but I think they're going to look similar to what you see today. And the majority of the robots in application today are moving product, not yet truly picking product. Yeah. And that's a, uh, that's a place where I think, uh, for instance, my, uh, my distributor friend, uh, was responding to that. They're using autonomous mobile robots successfully. Mm -hmm. and, um, it, it's the trying to introduce picking uh, robots where they're having a challenge. Correct. All right. Number three, micro fulfillment. Now, I did my first story on the topic back in 2018. And, you know, it, it appeared as if it was ready to take off, especially in grocery. Um, at the same time, at least in grocery, it feels as if there has been some cooling, maybe because people are returning to the stores to shop, um, you know, other than the, the largest, like, uh, say, a Kroger with Ocado or uh, mm -hmm. Walmart and some of the things they're doing. How do you size up micro-fulfillment? Well, micro-fulfillment, you, you did a very good job there of starting broad, going narrow, micro-fulfillment grocery, and then going micro-fulfillment again. Um, I think if you look at grocery and I'll address hard goods as well. But if you look at grocery, um, micro-fulfillment cooled during COVID. Yeah. And in part, it cooled during COVID because, oh my God, we can actually do this from the stores. And delivery services hooking up with store in-store picking services, sometimes the delivery service doing the picking, sometimes the store doing the picking themselves and having a delivery service take it, or having a customer come and do a parking lot pickup, kind of the hybrid, you know, not quite totally uh, fulfilling it to your doorstep. Um, they realized they could do it. Now, they also could do it because a lot of people weren't coming into the store. 
So they didn't have to fight with customer foot traffic and whether or not that would cause a customer service or a customer experience issue and turn people off to that chain is, is something for people above my pay grade to decide um, within those businesses. But they proved they could do it. And then, of course, after COVID, and you and I have talked about this a couple of times before, the first place people went back to shop in person was the grocery store. That was your weekly, I'm going out to, to get my supplies. I'm, you know, I, I know my grocery store. I'm doing my shopping. It's, it's close. Grocery stores are ubiquitous across the, you know, the country. You're very close to them. You're not driving a long distance in most cases to get to one. So a lot of foot traffic went back to them. Um, but they proved that you can do micro-fulfillment through a very hybridized approach from a store without having a delivery service that you own. Right. They didn't have to have all these small trucks. Now, other micro-fulfillment, hard good micro-fulfillment, um, is really a trade-off between cost to transport and cost to distribute. And when I say distribute, I'm saying there's a difference between having a distribution center or fulfillment center in Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania and servicing New York City with overnight delivery all the time, or even further afield, you pay the premium for transport versus putting something in Brooklyn and having couriers deliver it into Manhattan, you know, that morning or later that afternoon based off the order. Um, the cost is significantly higher when you get those locations in urban areas, and that has to be balanced against the cost to expedite it vis-a-vis -vis transportation from outside of the area. So opportunistically, if you can get into good, cheap real estate, if stores, retail space is not exactly at the, at the demand level it was at before COVID, for obvious reasons, um, if you can get into a dark store to support micro-fulfillment, the key is simply looking at your customer demand, looking at your customer truly does demand that much of a rapid turnaround from the time I placed my order to the time I want it on my doorstep. Am I really competing with going out and getting it myself, same day delivery? I can get it quicker if I go myself. Um, or am I really just competing with expectation? And that cost balancing point is something many companies struggle with. How to do micro-fulfillment isn't the mystery. Whether or not it's necessary and what gives you your best landed cost to your customer while meeting or exceeding their expectations, that's some of the alchemy that goes into how you should support micro-fulfillment in your business. You know, that leads us to, it's going to lead us to our last topic, but, but to get there, um, if we move outside of grocery, where I do think the buy online, pick up in store, uh, you know, model seems to have uh, have taken hold. Mm -hmm. When I talk to retailers, particularly boutique retailers, um, they're doing, you know, store fulfillment, but they really don't like it. And, um, and, and I've had a number of them who sort of touted it to me during COVID saying, you know, it, it's like the most inefficient thing we do. And uh, the, the other point, I, I don't know if you're seeing this, but we all talk about, well, we've got to do next day and, you know, maybe same day delivery. And yet I, I talked with a very large boutique retailer a couple of weeks ago who is expanding their network, but also said that for Peak, uh, what they're aiming is uh, a three-day, now this is during peak, mm -hmm. a, a three-day promise to premium customers, you've signed up for something mm -hmm. versus three to five days for everybody else. And it's their experience that their customers are fine with that. And again, I mean, this isn't like, you know, my wife's Dillies for kids. This is a, you know, a global boutique retailer. 
do you are you finding as you talk to retail clients that the I know that there are still people pushing, you know, same day, next day, but that they're sort of backing off and saying, you know, we don't have to do that. We're seeing both sides of that that coin okay. come up on a toss, if you will. Um, the description you the, you just gave of, you know, three days to my premium customers and three to five for everybody else. So much of it depends on the commodity. So much of it depends on the customer base. There is a different expectation on the part of luxury customers versus we'll call it mass merchant customers. Um, there's a different expectation on the part of people getting furniture versus people getting printer ink. Okay. You know, furniture people, well, it's going to be three, two weeks. Okay. Because how often do I get furniture? Yeah. And, and in part, you know, you have that's a, a white glove delivery or closer to white glove delivery than just UPS or a parcel guy dumping it on your front porch. Um, so the, the answer is yes. And the deciding factor is it's very much like the, the first topic we started on when you asked about what was trending. Um, there's a labor shortage. I can't get people. I must automate. You notice there's no financial calculation in that. If there is, there's one, well, I, if I can't pick the product, I don't get sales. I, I have to automate just to get my sales to my customer. And I'm sure there are extreme cases where perhaps that's true. Um, but I'm sure more often than not, it's a matter of how much does my labor really need to cost me? And how much does that justify in terms of mechanizing, automating, or otherwise supplanting labor to service my customers? You've got a bit of the same thing here. I want to go next day. Okay, here's the network you need to be next day without expediting any parcel freight. Oh my gosh, how many buildings? Right. Uh, what would two day be? And then I'll just expedite those customers that really want next day, you know. Um, and they start backing off from it very quickly because it is pricey. You know, let's face it, growing up, we all wanted a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or whatever. And then we realized how much they cost and said, yeah, no, the Buick and the Fords are pretty cool. Right, right. Yeah, so that that's going to segue to what's going to be the last question. And uh, and I know you and I talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and I just thought it was a great topic. I only know of two examples, so it's hard to say that this is a trend. But, you know, in the last year, uh, both uh, American Eagle Outfitters and The Gap, so two pretty similar, uh, you know, retailers, although The Gap is probably much larger than AEO, um, have made investments in their networks, but are also moving to a shared asset or shared network supply chain where they're going to open them up to other retailers. Now, I think in both cases, and I've, I've reported publicly on both, in both cases, you know, AEO isn't targeting the Gap as their customer or Abercrombie and Fitch. They're targeting smaller retailers, uh, perhaps, you know, boutique, startup boutique retailers. Uh, and, and I believe Gap is going after the same. You were a retailer. Uh, one, are you watching this trend and how do you see it playing out? How do you think it's going to be received? Um, I think it's going to depend on the retailer. You made a very telling comment there that they're not really going to try and market it to other retailers who are their direct competitors, meaning apparel at their level, et cetera, et cetera, where they might you know, literally have the same customer they're trying to sell into. Uh, retailers, as you know, are notoriously territorial, notoriously protective, um, and, and maybe for good reason, because the service they provide is buying it from one source and just getting it into the customer's hands. So they really have to make sure that they have a direct route to their customer. They have the best route to their customer. That could be one of their competitive advantages. 
by being able to have a better supply chain than the retailer who's selling the same thing to the same people. So when you start to talk about sharing services, first, you eliminate those retailers that might compete with you. But then there are still retailers who'd be happy to work with you because you sell entirely different commodities. And that type of critical scale or economies of scale that you can realize by bringing multiple businesses together under one roof to execute a very labor intensive activity, loose each picking and shipping to customers, the more volume you get, as everybody knows in supply chain logistics, the more your opportunities to invest money in it, whether it's in systems to batch things better or put in you know endless batches where you're just kind of floating through your day and optimizing as you go along, or whether it's in automation or mechanization to take labor out move product through more quickly, get better productivity per square foot, better throughput per square foot. All those are absolute truisms of this kind of shared services approach. By the way, it's not like it's any new formula. 3PL providers have been doing it for decades. Multi-tenant 3PL buildings, it's the same approach. With a retail complexion to it, maybe a retailer who's not competing with that retailer feels better about going into it because, well, that's another retailer they get the needs of retail customers versus cohabitating with a wholesaler and a packaging company and another retailer at a 3PL site. But if that 3PL site is articulated for retail e-commerce distribution and that's all they're selling, well, maybe it's just as good. So there's definite benefit to it. There's wisdom in creating that critical mass and trying to share services, but it's also been done before and, and there's success there. I'm just not sure that there's anything better about a retailer doing it, except for that particular retailer. They're going to get much better cost to serve their customers if they manage that shared services fulfillment capability correctly, because other retailers will be funding them. And at some point, other retailers may say, hmm, should I fund them or can I go someplace else? The jury's out. I think it's promising. I'm really watching it closely. Maybe American Eagle Outfitters and, and Gap take different approaches as retailers will have a really good test bed. Um, but we'll see what happens as we get through you know, the next season. Um, and I think the telling year is going to be next year because let's face it, it's after Labor Day. I mean, you know, my old days at Toys R Us, we were officially in season post Labor Day. Nothing else happened but focusing on, you know, supply chain logistics and getting product to where it needed to be. I think next year you'll see some very telling signs on how much it's going to take off or how much maybe it's hitting its challenges. Well, and they're both just getting rolling, you know, so um, it, you're right. It is probably next year, even, you know, the year after that, um, that we see how it plays. I will say the thing that, that I found interesting about both of them is... There is there's something in the water around this idea in that uh, in the last issue of Supply Chain Management Review, um, I published an article about uh, American Eagle and what they're doing. And as I was going through my manuscript files, um, I had a manuscript from Accenture. They weren't talking just about retailers. They were just talking about industry in general, but saying that, you know, supply chain has gotten so expensive and so complex that um, that. Uh, people need to start thinking about the idea of a shared asset supply chain. So, you know, Accenture was promoting the concept without directly addressing, you know, specialty retail. Uh, and, and in that same issue, I had another article from Tata Consulting, uh, who was looking at one of the things that AEO wants to do, uh, again, that, that I wrote about, so I'm not, you know, uh, speaking out of school, 
but which is combining uh, combining parcel deliveries so that, you know, uh, I, Bob, have ordered from three different retailers. Rather than getting three different packages, uh, they can be merged in transit so that I get one delivery via AEO. And uh, Tata Consulting, without, you know, talking about AEO or any mm -hmm. other supplier, uh, was uh, was had had done some research with Carnegie Mellon on the concept um, and was promoting that concept. So I think there's whether it takes off or not, there's right. something in the water right now around this concept. So it, it's kind of interesting. I'll be watching it as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. It's, I'd be curious the the uh, merging packages to get one package to the customer was that done pre or post COVID? Post. Okay. Because the, the world's changed in how it views delivery to the home. Um, Pre-COVID, there was a huge stress on customer experience and having three packages come to, the, to a customer from three different locations when they could get one, there was a big benefit to getting the one. Post-COVID, a lot of people were just like, just get my package. <laughs> you know now maybe that'll right. fade away as as you know human memory is pretty short but to me it was intriguing how the customer service demands went from oh we absolutely need one package to no they don't care how many packages they get as long as they get it yeah and meanwhile the, the flip side of that is you know now i'm living in a high-rise building and you go down into the basement where our um uh, where, you know, where we, where we put our boxes and mm -hmm. things that can be recycled, the recycle bit. There's two, mm -hmm. there's two very large dumpsters for recycles. They're always full, by the way. Sure. And there's a, there's a big sign over the dumpsters that says boxes, boxes everywhere. Do your part <laughs> to help us control the boxes. Sure. And, yeah. um, Break you know, them down. Well, right, exactly. So I, I think people are, you know, sort of getting overwhelmed with boxes. And if you can. Yeah. Oh, how many how many high rise condominium complexes have package rooms now? When five years ago there was no package room, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> now no, they have package rooms with shelves by floor, so you can find your package in an organized fashion because we're getting inundated with them for sure. It is yes, it is true. Well, great, Brian. That's everything I wanted to talk about today. So thank you so much for uh, being my guest. Oh, Bob, no, thank you so much for asking me to join. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not a subject expert in every single point we talked about, but the four decades of experience and the, the current work we do with our clients, I mean, hopefully some folks learned a few things uh, through our conversation here. Great. Well, that's all the time we have today. And again, a special thanks to Brian Jensen from St. Ange. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll be back for our next episode for Supply Chain Management Review. I'm Bob Troublecock. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.